Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. I apologize for disappearing last month. Life happens, as they say. We explorers of history must do as all explorers, past and present, have done when faced with obstacles and setbacks. We stand back up and forge ahead. Trivia time. Who was the first person to circumnavigate the globe? Here's a hint. It was not Ferdinand Magellan. The answer will be provided in just a few weeks. The history of our world is filled with people who are driven to explore beyond the borders they've always known. Some people are content to remain at home, while others can't fight the urge to see what lies beyond the horizon. But why do they do it? Why do some people have such a strong desire to explore? Multiple reasons. Sometimes it's a necessity, such as a search for resources, or to find new lands to conquer, which may also involve a need for resources. Maybe they need to find shorter routes to important destinations. Or, in a similar vein, perhaps an attempt to avoid hostile territories. Or it could even just be a desire to explore for the sake of exploring. That sense of wanderlust that just takes hold of some people. The reasons are varied, as are the means by which exploration is carried out. Yet it's such an integral part of our history that I made it this month's theme, Beyond the Horizon. What's so interesting to see as we move through this theme is how that horizon shifts. Ancient Greco-Romans conducted explorations, sometimes peacefully and other times not. In China, we find exploration branching out across the continent and even out on the water. The Age of Exploration brought us such European explorers as Ferdinand Magellan, Francis Drake, and even that guy who actually didn't discover America. And then we have modern U.S. exploration, which has taken on a direction where we'll define horizon a bit differently. As we go, we're going to encounter multiple concepts, including circumnavigation. That concept is usually applied to the entire world, but we're going to see times where the concept is on a smaller scale, but no less significant when kept in context with the world they knew. Perhaps they circumnavigated a peninsula or a body of water, something other than the grand-scale circumnavigation of the world. As always, we start today with the ancient Greco-Roman world. The first exploration we're going to look at takes us all the way back to the time of Darius I and the Achaemenid Empire. He ruled from 522 to 486 BCE. Skylax of Carienda was an explorer and writer during this time. As his name implies, he was born in a city called Carienda on a small island off the western coast of southwestern Anatolia. Today, this is a large part of modern-day Turkey. This area would later become part of the northern stretch of the Dalian League's allied city-states with Athens. That comes a good bit later, though. Now, I will say in advance that this is one of those situations where there are doubts as to what he actually did, just so you have that in mind as we go forward. According to the story, Darius I gave the order for Skylax to sail down the Indus River, around the Arabian Peninsula, 
and onto the Egyptian town of Suez, which is aptly named since it sits on the northern coast of the Gulf of Suez, which is connected to the southern terminus of the Suez Canal. This would have been quite the journey. Thing is, we don't have any of his writings. No copy of his original writings have survived. All we have to go by are quotes from later authors, such as the Greek historian and geographer Hecateus of Miletus, who lived from 550 to possibly 476 BCE. Again, we lack many definite details, such as the death date of Hecateus. Skylax was also quoted in Aristotle. Strabo, a Greek geographer and historian who lived centuries after Skylax, and Herodotus, often called the father of history, a title his critics strongly protest, but that's for another time. Herodotus gives us an account of Skylax for this 30-month journey he's said to have taken, one which credits Darius I as the one to discover the greater part of Asia. He mentions Skylax and the others with him as trusted men sent out to see where the Indus meets the sea. And on this journey, they sailed from Caspatyrus in a region called Pactica. Now there's a problem right there that brings the account into doubt. This city and region are unknown. That is, historians have been unable to place them in any real, known, mapped locations. There are theories which include the possibility of misspellings by Greek writers. We do know that Caspatyrus has been spelled two different ways among Greek writers, and at least one scholar named David Bivar believed both are misspellings of Pascapyrus, which is a Greek spelling for Peshawar in modern-day Pakistan. This theory then has him sailing from the Kabul River to the Indus River. I cannot attest to how strong this theory is myself. I looked into a few sources, including those of the late Dr. Bavar, who certainly appears to have become an expert in the field during his 96 years. It's an interesting theory, and I think it could explain the questions of Skylax's journey. But still, it's just a theory, and it's likely one we'll never be able to confirm or deny with any degree of certainty, especially with Skylax's own records being lost. In addition to that, we find another issue. Herodotus states that Skylax and the men sent with him sailed downstream to the east, but the Indus does not flow to the east. It flows to the southwest. Now it's possible Herodotus, Skylax, or both made some sort of mistake here. To look at ancient maps, there was some belief that the Indus did indeed flow southeast. I'll post the map used by Herodotus where you can see this. So it was a belief of the time, but it's enough to cast at least a little doubt on the account. Now apparently there have been excavations at Suez that potentially corroborate the account of Skylax, which could support and be supported by Dr. Bavar's theory. But it's still something we're just not certain of, and whatever account Skylax wrote, as I said, the vast majority has been lost except for those quotations by later writers. These quotes do, however, provide accounts of people, landscapes, weather, and potentially even political affairs. Which brings me to the last point for Skylax. As for the reasons for his exploration, there's a few. The first has already been mentioned, answering the question, where does this go? How does it get there? Exploring the geography and learning the territory. But that's not all. Darius ruled an empire 
and empires often expand through conquests. To that end, it's quite possible Skylax was exploring in part to learn about cities and their leaders, the politics employed by the people living in any given area along this route. And it seems Darius did expand into some of the lands explored, though the extent of the acquired territory is uncertain. Alright, so that's the ancient Greek explorer Skylax of Carianda, plus a little refresher in the importance of knowing the reliability of sources. As historians, we always question, question sources, question each other, admit we really don't have all the answers. That's how we learn and expand our knowledge. How we discover when something we thought we knew may not be right after all. History may be set in stone, but our understanding of it is not. So, having said that, let's move on to our next exploration. I'm going to move on now to the 4th century BCE for a different kind of exploration. This time we're looking at one of my favorite historical figures to study, Alexander III of Macedon, more commonly known as Alexander the Great. Alexander was born in 356 BCE in the city of Pella, the second capital of ancient Macedon. During his youth, he was tutored by Aristotle and succeeded his father Philip II on the throne at the age of 20 when his father was assassinated by one of his own bodyguards. The reasons for this assassination are unclear, though there are several theories, but it had a more profound effect on the ancient world than any involved in the assassination plot could have possibly imagined. It opened the door for one of the largest empires in the ancient world, Alexander's Empire. Before he could begin his conquests, Alexander had to be sure he had no potential rivals. His cousin and two princes were killed by his order. Philip's seventh and final wife, Cleopatra Eurydice, killed herself after Alexander's mother, Olympias, had her two children, Europa and Caranus, killed. It has been suggested that Cleopatra's son, Caranus, was killed on Alexander's order and only the deaths of Europa and Cleopatra were because of Olympias. She didn't exactly care for Cleopatra. Alexander wasn't happy about what she'd done, but he still ordered the death of Cleopatra's uncle, Attalus, who happened to be a general in the army in Asia Minor, who also happened to be considering leaving Macedon to join Athens. Alright, so Alexander's in power and ready to get on to the conquest. First, he staged a campaign in the Balkans to ensure the northern borders were secure before setting out east. Now, this time I'm not going to go into the details of his conquests. I'm sure I could go on for quite some time if I did. I'm just going to focus on a few points, and I want to mention one of the keys to Alexander's success. He was a tactician. By all accounts, a brilliant one. Undefeated, in fact. One of history's most successful military commanders. If and when I talk about military campaigns, you can expect to hear more about that. After securing the northern borders, Alexander's campaign involved taking on Darius III, ruler of the Persian Empire at the time. Bit of a coward, actually. Alexander took his army and crossed the Hellespont in 334 BCE. This particular strait is the only one connecting the Black Sea to the Mediterranean Sea making it a very important location. He won a victory over Persian forces shortly after the crossing and turned south, then east once he reached the southern coast. 
He then turned north into the mountains, around and southeast back to the Mediterranean coast, and moved south towards Egypt. Before he got there, though, he encountered Darius's army in 333. Though Darius had the larger army, Alexander was able to lead his own army to victory. Darius then ditched his wife, two daughters, and mother on the battlefield just so he could escape. Told you. Coward. He even tried to offer a peace treaty later, giving Alexander the lands he'd already taken and a ransom for his family. Guess what Alexander said? Along the way to Egypt, Alexander accomplished something quite impressive in the Siege of Tyre in 332 BCE. Tyre is a city on what used to be an island in the Mediterranean Sea, about one kilometer off the coast. The city had walls around it, the highest reaching 150 feet on the eastern side, which faced the land. Following two attempts to negotiate with the Tyrians, the latter of which saw his representatives killed and tossed into the sea, Alexander and his army built a bridge. A land bridge. Eventually, utilizing various tactics such as siege towers to protect his men, Alexander reached the city and claimed it. But unlike previous cities, he was unforgiving to these Tyrians who'd resisted and killed his representatives. The Greek historian Arian tells us that 8,000 civilians were killed in addition to the 6,000 or so killed in the battle. 2,000 more were executed and 30,000 were sold into slavery. In other words, don't make Alexander mad. <laughs> Needless to say, the cities that hadn't resisted Alexander fared a lot better. But what's so fascinating about this particular location is that the land bridge Alexander's army created is still there. They quite literally changed the geography of the area in order to take the city. Not necessarily an exploration, since they actually created it, but pretty impressive. Alexander eventually reached Egypt, where he was welcomed as a liberator, named son of the god Amun, began calling himself the son of Zeus Amun, and currency showed him with the horns of Amun to symbolize his divine nature. As he went along, what Alexander was doing was kind of blending peoples and cultures, which we see here. He also founded the city of Alexandria in Egypt, then he moved north into what is modern-day Iraq, defeated Darius again, and captured Babylon while Darius was once more running away. He eventually took Persepolis and chased Darius until he was killed by one of his own men. Alexander claimed that Darius had named him his successor before he died. Those men who had killed Darius had taken off, so they weren't around to counter that claim. And thus, the empire had fallen. Simplified, but it gets us to where we need to be, which is India. Alexander had a sort of desire to reach the ends of the earth, which meant going through India. According to incorrect maps of the time, the ends of the earth were located on the other side. Not only that, he was restless. He didn't like sitting still for very long. He ventured into the Indus River Basin, reaching territory where Skylax had previously explored. But remember, he was with Darius I. For Alexander and the men he'd brought with him, India was a mystery. The terrain, the people, and it was much larger than they'd believed. Unfortunately for Alexander, 
The exploration he achieved was limited. His army was tired. They didn't quite share his drive and his need to explore. Along the way, those cities he'd peacefully taken had become part of his empire. This was partly achieved by encouraging his men to take wives and have children, as well as taking men of fighting age with him. He was creating a blended culture to form a unified empire. Unfortunately for him, the men longed to see their families again. They'd been pressing on and on until they revolted, and nothing he did could sway them. So they turned south and marched along the Indus River. They conquered some Indian tribes along the way, and he sent much of his army to Carmania in what is today southern Iran. He also sent a fleet into the Persian Gulf to explore. Alexander himself tried to lead the rest of his army through the Gedrosian Desert, north of the Gulf, losing many of his men before arriving in Susa in 324 BCE. Alexander later died in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar II in Babylon. This was in mid-June of 323 BCE, and he was 32. It's quite remarkable how much he accomplished. One of the largest empires in the ancient world by the time he turned 30. Unfortunately, he wasn't really the administrative type. He wanted to be out there fighting and exploring, looking for that edge of the earth. So when he was forced to stop campaigning, he struggled. Additionally, the death of his closest friend and likely his lover, Hephaestion, was a devastating blow. Despite his plans for future conquests starting in Arabia, he did not live long enough to carry them out. So Alexander the Great's campaigns brought exploration for reasons of conquest and of exploration for its own sake. Though what Alexander and his army found in India would ultimately become a mystery again for future Greeks and Romans. Alexander had no legitimate heir who was able to assume control. It is said that when asked on his deathbed who he left his kingdom to, he responded, Toi Kratistoi, to the strongest. Alternatively, he may have been misheard and intended to leave it to Crateroi, or Craterus, one of his top generals. Whatever the case, it did not end well. Civil war ultimately tore Alexander's empire apart but we have Alexander's exploration as a part of his enduring legacy, showing us how military conquest can drive that exploration for reasons other than simply finding what's out there. That, and that same desire to find something new, like the ends of the earth itself. With that covered, we're now going to shift to Rome. They started off mostly looking to the explorations already carried out by the Greeks for any information. Naturally, this changed as the empire grew. They couldn't very well expand without exploring beyond their borders. So the explorations found here are in the late 1st century BCE and into the early centuries CE. Mostly the Roman Empire, not so much during the Republic. Though I do want to mention that their old enemy, Carthage, had some explorations that we know of during the 5th century BCE. Two in particular, with a distinction after their names you've heard in more recent explorers, Hanno the Navigator and Himilco the Navigator. What the records tell us about Hanno is that he sailed on the Atlantic coast of Morocco in 480 BCE, heading south. There is some question as to how far he really went. The establishment of several settlements is recorded, 
but after the ancient city of Lyxis, it becomes a little less certain. Other accounts, older than the first one where we got the previous information, which are not as easily verified, have him reaching locations like Senegal and Sierra Leone. They even mention a volcanic peak and gorillas. To be more specific, the peak is the Chariot of the Gods, located in modern-day Cameroon. Whether this latter part is true, we just aren't sure. Himiko we know a little less about, but he too was on the Atlantic in the 5th century BCE. He is thought to be the first explorer from the Mediterranean to reach northwestern Europe as far as Brittany in northwestern France. Interestingly, as part of his exploration, he noted things like tangled seaweed and sea monsters. Myths like these, namely sea monsters, were one cause of discouraging exploration out into the Atlantic. Each of these accounts is found individually in a periplus, a Greek word referring to a type of log providing information such as settlements, distance between them, hazards to watch out for, and other information used by boat captains. Information about Skylax's journey is drawn from one as well. Obviously, overland explorations like that of Alexander's conquest didn't produce a periplus, and the explorers themselves didn't necessarily write these. They may have, or their writings may have been quoted in the creation of a periplus the way Skylaxes were. Alright, to Rome we go. Earlier, I mentioned Strabo as having quoted Skylax, so let's talk about him. Strabo was born sometime around 64 BCE in Amasea, part of modern-day Turkey. Though he was a Greek philosopher, he was almost certainly a Roman citizen, and it was for Rome that his explorations provided the most impact. His works contributed much to the Augustan age of Rome. He was a witness to the transitions from the end of the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire, and the effects it had both in Rome and in the Mediterranean world. Most important of all was the Geographica in 17 books. Not only the most important of his works, but indeed the most important source of ancient geography. In it, he utilized his own knowledge and that of other authors whose original works are now lost, such as Skylax. In terms of how to actually do geography, he was critical of several of his predecessors such as Eratosthenes, a Greek polymath who lived in the 2nd and 3rd centuries BCE and became the chief librarian at the Library of Alexandria. He was a mathematician, astronomer, geographer, philosopher, and poet. Among his accomplishments is a rather remarkably accurate calculation of the circumference of the Earth. Equally as remarkable is his calculation of the tilt of the Earth's axis. The explanations are outside our theme today, but for now I'll just point out that his calculations resulted in a circumference of the Earth being 25,000 miles, with some margin of error based on a variety of factors. With all our advanced technology today, the circumference is around 24,900 miles. So he was really close, just under 1% off. Even accounting for the margin of error that I won't go into today, he was still very close, and without modern technology. Okay, I had to brag on the guy a bit. He was a big deal, and you can see why Strabo mentioned him when writing the Geographica. In a sense, Eratosthenes did explorations of his own. But as I said, 
he criticized him. He preferred practical and particular to theoretical and general. Not big on the use of mathematics in his work. He was unconcerned with the geographical wonders used by others in his field. He claimed to be writing for Roman statesmen who cared more about the anthropological aspects. And so his works were descriptive, seeking precision and practicality, which he accomplished through a combination of his own travels and by studying the writings of others, such as Eratosthenes, even though he criticized him. His own explorations of the ancient world were extensive. We know that he traveled to Egypt, Ethiopia, Asia Minor, Tuscany, and many others. While these weren't places unknown in the ancient world, he was exploring with a specific way of documenting them that had not been used, finding details he felt his predecessors lacked in their own writings. He wrote such details as street wits, road layouts in cities, along with other specific and practical details others hadn't focused on. Remember the idea that he was writing for statesmen, someone who would want to know if his chariot would fit in the city roads. If an area had a harbor, he would describe details such as the size of it. He would also might describe the way buildings were constructed. But that's not the only information he included. Along with geographical detail, he included political details as well, and those of the people in these areas, even histories of the cities and regions he visited. His Geographica wasn't just detailed description of the ancient world. In many ways, it was an encyclopedia, one that, perhaps surprisingly, was not as read during his own time. Strabo died in 24 CE, with the last specific mention in his Geographica dated around 23 CE. Based on the various details of his life and references made, this final draft was likely his second draft. Yet it seemed his work was little read in that time. He was effectively rediscovered by the Byzantine Empire during the Middle Ages, and few copies still exist. Within these copies are numerous errors that do exist in the one surviving manuscript that they were copied from. Despite these errors, the detailed work of Strabo is a valuable resource when looking at the ancient world. Geographically, historically, politically, and other ways, set at the time when the world shifted from 1 BCE to 1 CE and the Roman Empire was on the rise. This is what his explorations provided for us. Maybe not as appreciated during his time, but certainly appreciated now. As a final note, there's something to keep in mind about Strabo's approach. Natural landmarks, the ones that he didn't really care about using, tend to rarely change. A mountain, a river, ocean, or other such geographical landmarks tend to be the same place year after year. Harbors can be built or destroyed. Cities raised or leveled. Bridges can be built or destroyed. People can settle in one place and later move elsewhere. In terms of using such details to navigate, they could become outdated very quickly. And there was no GPS to save you back then. So there were drawbacks to anyone who wanted to use his Geographica as a navigational tool. It could easily have been outdated between the time he completed one of his extensive travels and the time he published his writings about what he'd observed. Which is perhaps the reason it wasn't widely read during ancient times.
So that's Strabo, a Roman explorer who was of Greek descent, but accomplished his vast explorations and memorable work as a Roman citizen. Critical of his predecessors, yet with failings of his own. Still, his Geographica is an extremely valuable look into the ancient world in the time of Augustus, even with his errors. I think that's a good stopping point for today. We've looked at a few explorers and their reasons. Skylex of Carianda, who explored for the sake of exploration and also likely to provide Darius information on people and politics. Alexander the Great, who pushed from Macedon to India in his conquest to create an empire and to try and reach what was believed to be the ends of the earth on the other side. Hanno the Navigator and Himilco the Navigator, explorers from Carthage who set out in opposite directions to see what was out there. And finally Strabo, who set out to explore all that he could in order to compile his practical and precise geographica. All going out to find something, whatever it was, for whatever reasons they held. Sometimes into lands they already had some knowledge of, and sometimes into lands they knew little to nothing about. Conquest and knowledge are pretty much the main ideas behind these explorations. They went for that horizon, and next week we'll find out what some explorers in China were looking for when they set out on their explorations. Hope you'll tune in to see what they found. Until then, 